And um, I just want to say good afternoon to everyone. Everyone's doing all right? Yeah. Notable absence is Brad, Katie, and the whole crew. They are over in Nanaimo. Uh, he'll be preaching at a, a different church, maybe at the same time as I am. So you might be getting a double preaching, you know? And maybe there'll be extra power in my preaching today, because Brad's also preaching somewhere else. Who knows? We'll see. Um, but my name is Michelle, for those of you I haven't met yet. I think I've met most of you in this room, if not most. And there's an exciting season ahead of us in our journey of replanting and revitalization. And you've sort of heard it already through uh, Dan's amazing announcements. Dan, thank you so much for remembering my name this time around. <laughs> and um, big thumbs up. Always huge when we remember names. Um, but we've started small groups as you have seen in our announcement uh, PowerPoint there. We've, we're starting to move from rows here to circles within living rooms. And we've also started serve team training nights. And these nights are sort of key in moving towards alignment together, headed into this new journey that we have, you know, with revitalizing and replanting. Uh, our last team training night was around small group training or around small group teams, which went really well. And we're hoping to have something like that again at the Ings residence this Thursday at 6.30. And really it's, um, our new season is about direction, moving towards one direction and deepening in relationship with one another. And it's really a beautiful picture of our journey thus far. So for prayer team training nights, our heart behind it is to talk about the heart of prayer ministry, why we do it. We've been doing it sort of week in and week out um, in both of our services, and here we're going to talk about the principles and the practical aspects of prayer ministry. Like, how do you do that? And if this is something that you're interested in, or you've been part of the prayer ministry, or you're just curious, you're curious how prayer ministry works, but that's all about, um, I invite you to come, even out of curiosity. We'd love to have you there. Just know that you're wanted and welcome. So today, we're continuing our movement throughout Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. And our text today is all about groups in conflict. And I don't know about you, but I love a good love story. I love it. I love love. And I find that some of the best stories starts with or happens out of the backdrop of groups in conflict. Think of Romeo and Juliet, a classic. Think of Pride and Prejudice. I watch that every year with my sister. And if you could think of a few more, that'd be great. That's the only two I could think of. But other stories where there's groups in conflict with impossible differences brought together by love and relationship. It's all over movies, it's all over songs and TV shows. We love to tell these stories. And if I think of this recent favorite movie, actually, now that I think of it, um, Marie's new favorite movie, or recent favorite movie, she has a lot, to be fair. When I say favorite movie, it just means whatever she's watching for three days in a row, right? And this one is called Little Mermaid. You know the, you know the narrative. It's about two groups in conflict, the people of the land versus the people of the sea. And they're brought together by this love between Ariel and Prince Eric. We love to tell these stories. Because I think on one end, they're super entertaining and fun to watch and to retell. But on another end, there is this deep longing in the human heart for peace and reconciliation. 
And we also don't need to look very far to see the real narratives of division and discord all around us. There are groups in conflict all over the world. Think of apartheid. Think of segregation. And more current to us today, think of the conflict between Israel and Palestine. It reminds us that narratives like The Little Mermaid really does feel like a piece of fiction. It's just a movie. It's not the real thing. And while they entertain us and stir up our desires, they do not give us any real hope for any lasting peace or reconciliation in ourselves or in the world. And like I said, today we're sitting under a narrative of peace and reconciliation. But I want to argue that it's different from any other. Where every other stories but reconciling and peace are but a shadow too. And this narrative is found in the cross of Jesus Christ. This is not a piece of fiction, at least for those of us who call ourselves Christians and follow Jesus. It's a piece of history that tells us the future has broken into the present, a new reality, if you will. And it's a story that we can put our trust in again and again, that a new world order is breaking in and a city within a city is being built. And it's built on the good news of being reconciled to God, being reconciled to each other, and becoming this new humanity. So that's where we're going today. Being reconciled to God, being reconciled to each other, and becoming a new humanity. But first, we need to set context or, or background. Any good story provides a backdrop of where the story happens. And in our story, the backdrop is this long-standing divide and animosity between the Jews and Gentiles. And before there was this divide, there was a blessing. And that blessing came from a promise that God made to a man named Abram. Take a look at Genesis 12, 1 to 3. I think we have it up there for us. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This was God's promise. His promise and his redemptive plan for all of humanity. And it began with this man named Abraham and his tribe. And his promise that he was going to do was going to be fulfilled through Abraham's tribe by promising to make him this great nation. A nation that is set apart or holy to God for the purpose of glorifying God and blessing the families of the world. This was the calling of Abraham's tribe, the Israelites. But it was not fully lived out. Story after story in the Old Testament will show us that the Jewish people forgot and even rejected their calling. So much so that they twisted their blessing into pride and prejudice against those who were non-Jewish or Gentiles. And if you look at this William Barclay quote, he says, the Jew had immense contempt for the Gentile, 
The Gentiles, said the Jews, were fuel for the fires of hell. It was not even lawful to render help to a Gentile mother in the hour of sorest need, for that would bring another Gentile into the world. And this inner prejudice, this internal prejudice had an outward expression through the temple. And this temple that I'm talking about is the one that was rebuilt by Herod the Great. It was a temple during Jesus' time. And if you look at its structure, <coughs> which we may have a picture of, the temple literally had a wall that kept Gentiles away. There was the court of the Gentiles, there was the court of women, there was a court of priests and the holy of holies. And at the, the temple was the center of Jewish life. It was spatially understood where God himself dwelt where heaven and earth intersect. And if you can imagine it, at the heart of Jewish life, this temple is a perversion of their calling to be a blessing to all nations and all families of the world, as they kept Gentiles away with this massive sign at the court of the Gentiles. Any of those who come any closer will be put to death. This is not how God asked his people to build the temple. If you look back in Old Testament text, this is not the image or the design of God's temple. This temple by Herod the Great has become a symbol of hostility and divide and has moved away from the redemptive plan of God to bless all nations, all families, and then enter into that story, Jesus, Son of God, entered our world through human flesh, born a Jewish man, a rabbi or a teacher, has become this reconciler of Jews and Gentile. He, the ultimate insider, if you will, has welcomed all outsiders. He was breaking down all the walls. That's the backdrop of our story. That's the backdrop of our text. Now let's dive into the text, into the first point or movement, reconciled to God. I want us to consider where Paul has taken us so far. If it's your first time here, we've been sitting under this letter to the, to the Ephesians, and it's this beautiful overview of the gospel. It's a, imagine a rushing river, if you will, that began with Paul's prayer. That that our eyes would be enlightened to the riches of God's glorious inheritance, that we might know the resurrection power that raised Christ from the dead. And that power is now somehow at work towards us, all of us here in this room and elsewhere. And has removed us from the pit and placed us on the throne, raised up with Christ. And then now we will see the same power at work towards us, the same resurrection power is now at work, building a new city within a city and forging a new humanity. And then within this glorious kingdom project that God has unearthed, Paul asks us to do one thing. He says, remember, remember. Because when we remain out of touch with our own redemption, there is a tendency, there is a tendency to twist our blessing into pride. 
And it comes in all kinds of forms, legalism, tribalism, favoritism. And right off the bat, Paul removes any standing based off of human-made categories. Listen to what he says. In the beginning of the verses, it says, Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth called uncircumcised by those who called themselves the circumcision, which is in the body by human hands. He addresses, Paul addresses what the Gentiles are often called by, by the Jews, which is the uncircumcised. And what Jews refer to themselves in favorable standing, which is the circumcised. And Paul right off the bat says, these are not categories which will define or earn our redemption or standing with God. Our favor with God is not earned or made by human hands. Our redemption is out of God's love for us, in view of our inherent value as human beings. You see, God made us all in his image, the Imago Dei. We are valuable and precious to him, not because we've earned it by the color of our skin or the affluence we're born into, the culture we're from, or our gender. Not even the developmental stage, in the womb. Paul writes in another letter that, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. What Paul is not saying is that there is no longer gender or cultural distinctions, that we're all gonna be one culture, one gender, one ethnicity. But these distinctions themselves, as beautiful as they are, they do not determine favor or salvation or access to God. For we're all precious to him as his children. Because we're made in his image. Um, my daughter, we just saw up there, um, she goes to daycare full time. And a part of their routine in daycare is to make all kinds of art. She has them by the, the stack. And I put them on her fridge. Sometimes if you come over our home, you'll see like her finger painting, you know, haphazard construction paper with some, some shape. And I store some of them so that she can take a look at them later. We get lots of art. And because Marie made them, they're valuable to me. I don't need an art expert to tell me they're beautiful. They're beautiful to me because she's made them and I handled them with care because they're my child's art. And God loves what he has made. He loves every one of us in this way, so much so that his son took on our image and died for all the ways we have sullied and mishandled this image, dehumanized this image. And this is true for all. Jews and Gentiles alike. But Paul writes specifically to us, the Gentiles, that we were once separated from Christ. We didn't know there was a coming Messiah or hope of a savior. We were excluded from the promise of God or the citizenship of Israel because the blessing was not extended to us and we had no real hope in the one true God. We were directly barred from the temple, the symbol of God's very presence, and we were constantly reminded of God's distance. He's far from you. And this applies to all of us in this room, in North America, 
displaced from the land of hope, spiritual refugees in need of a new future and a new place to call home. But God, he could not bear to be far from us. Here we see the spatial language of the gospel at work. Gospel language that always involved God drawing near, God coming close. And this should tell us that God's saving is not distance or cold. It's not removed or calculated. It's personal and involved. It comes near. It's not empty of emotion, but filled with emotion, filled with longing to bring us close to him. Because salvation is not from human hands. It's not earned. It's given out of a burning heart of a father that could not bear to be apart from his children. And any serious reflection of the good news of God coming near always leads to reconciliation with each other. And it always leads to the removal of any barriers from hearing the good news and experiencing the good news that Jesus has come near to all, irregardless of category, label, or distinction. And this moves us to our second point, which is reconciliation with each other. Paul writes that Jesus himself is our peace, and he achieves it by three words, abolishing, recreating, and reconciling. Abolishing, recreating, and reconciling. Paul writes that Christ abolished, or in this version that we have in the NIV, he sets aside the law. And as good Bible readers, we have to ask which law is Paul talking about here? Now it cannot be the moral law, because Jesus himself affirms the moral law. You see this in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. He actually expands on the moral law. So Paul cannot be talking about the moral law. That's okay. It happens. What Paul may be talking about, though, is the commands and regulations within ceremonial law. These are the laws that keep a Jewish person clean and determine when they become unclean. So clean, unclean. And included in what makes a Jewish person unclean is direct contact with Gentiles. And this seems to be, or this reading seems to be congruent with the theme of the passage and of Ephesians, of removing walls and barriers where there shouldn't be any walls. Especially when we consider how Jesus constantly broke barriers. Think of him speaking to the woman by the well. Broke all kinds of barriers. Think of him healing a Roman general's daughter, a Gentile, breaking all kinds of barriers. Think of him touching lepers by way of healing them, breaking all kinds of ceremonial laws, all kinds of walls all of which would make him a Jewish man, and not as a Jewish man, a well-respected rabbi, unclean. This is what got him in trouble all the time. You're unclean, Jesus, and you need cleansing. And this seems to be what Paul is getting at or affirming in Jesus' ministry, of setting aside the ceremonial law and removing barriers and walls where there shouldn't be any. And second, Jesus is recreating a new humanity instead of two. This is so hard to imagine. When I think of the distinctions we have on earth, it's hard to imagine. But the image of like two rivers 
flowing separately and coming together sort of paints it for me a little bit longer, or a little better, sorry. And it seems to be that Jesus, Jesus is doing two things. One is destroying our human-made barriers and categories. At the same time, as collateral, he is making a whole new humanity instead of two. Because when sin entered the world, it has completely fractured our relationships with one another. If you experience fracture in your relationships, I would say that's normal. We all experience it to a certain degree, some more than others. And since then, we've been separated by all kinds of walls, political, ideological, state walls, denominational walls, gender, tribal, racial, ethnic, to name a few, and that's not even exhaustive. Walls in our heart build when we take any parts of our identity that are good in and of themselves, beautiful in and of themselves, and make them the ultimate thing through which we are to be defined by. And consequently compare others to. We prop ourselves up by putting others down. And the same works in the, in the reverse. We prop others up and put ourselves down because we see other categories as more favorable. We see, we see other human-made categories as more lovable somehow. And these are systems of comparison. And Paul writes that Jesus has recreated a new humanity that affirms our inherent value as human beings. It puts to death all the systems of comparison that we prop up. But we know these divisions still happen today, don't we? They happen today. In N.T. Wright's observation of the text, he writes, if our churches are still divided along racial or cultural lines, Paul would say that we have not yet grasped the meaning of Jesus' death. There's ways to go in our discipleship. They happen today. The myth of progress, that somehow democracy, higher access to education, and advancement in technology is going to lead us to a freer society, told us during COVID that that's a lie. It has shown us of all the systemic ways that we are not free, that we are bound. And Jesus continues to reconcile us to God for all the ways we've propped up these systems and divisions along all kinds of walls. And while it may seem easy to point fingers at the Jewish people who twisted their blessing, I think of all the ways I've twisted my position and power and refuse to extend God's blessing and goodness to others. I have a part in the walls that continue to separate people. I have felt that more this week than any other. And listen, this, is, this reality is easier said here on the pulpit than it is lived. And when I sit at home and I read the news of what's going on around the world or around me, there are many walls I can't imagine ever coming down. Reconciliation between groups that I can't imagine ever coming to be. When I consider what is happening with the people of Palestine and Israel, a proper reaction is to mourn as the church, with those who are mourning because God is mourning. The situation runs in the opposite direction of new creation that Jesus has ushered, and instead it runs toward decreation and death and to more separation. Another loving reaction is to pray, 
Prayer is an act of love that asks God to come. Come, Lord Jesus, come in this situation. Come in the aid of these people who are in need and put an end to conflict. Destroy the walls that still exist. Or to even lament and bring our questions about pain and suffering to God, especially when nothing changes. He says, I can make room for that. You can come to me for that. And it should hopefully erase this instinct to point fingers at who might be at fault, whether at God or the other side. And if you're like me, I sometimes want to throw my hands up in the air at the conflict around me and around the world and say that I give up. I've said this this week. I don't know. I give up. I'm done. I don't know the solution. I'm not a political expert. I'm not a diplomat. I'm not a journalist. I can't do anything tangible about the hurting people across the globe or even in my own neighborhood. However, this passage clearly shows us that Paul thinks there's a way to peace. And it's through Jesus. And while we're sorely in need of good politics and policies, we need them. And in no way does it limit how God works his redemptive purposes through programs and policies. Paul tells us that Jesus is the only hope for reconciliation and lasting peace, both in our world and in our worlds around us today. Because Jesus' death and resurrection has ushered a brand new order. On the first Easter Sunday, redemption was set in motion. And it set in motion all kinds of work that Jesus himself is personally involved in today. Works of beauty and of justice. Ultimately, they're works of reconciliation that are reconciling us to the Father and to each other. All working towards one direction, towards completion and fulfillment. And the church needs to catch a vision for reconciliation where their contexts are found. To reconcile people to one another. And this looks different for every church. In each context and neighborhood, it looks different. It looks different for those churches in Europe and the churches in the Middle East. It looks different for churches in Asia and right here in Vancouver, and specifically here within our midst in Mount Pleasant. And you could say, one could say that we're on a journey of reconciliation ourselves. And it's not that we consider ourselves in grave conflict, yet our journey of joining two very different groups together to graft them into one, sounds familiar to the work Paul is doing in Ephesus and what Jesus has been about since his ministry on earth. I cannot help but think that this might be the good work or a part of the good work God has set aside for us, sorry, for us to do. Working with Jesus in the building of a new community and church right here in the heart of Mount Pleasant, testifying to his work of reconciliation to the world. And while we need strategy and planning, there's nothing more we need than Jesus himself coming to do that work right here in our midst. And our third point, our third movement, a new humanity. In Jesus, a new humanity is remade. As I've said, there's a city that's being built within the city, and it's populated by people being shaped by a common vision and values. Paul describes that this looks, what this looks like in three ways. One, 
its kingdom citizens. Two, it's a family of God and a temple not made of stone. So kingdom citizens, family of God, and temple not made of stone. Number one, kingdom citizens. As citizens, we have certain rights and privileges within God's kingdom and its access to God himself. This is an incredible privilege. So it doesn't matter who you are, you have access to God and you continue to have access to God. And as citizens, we carry this kingdom culture, this kingdom culture that is cultivated by practicing the way of Jesus together in the city. And this kingdom, it has no borders. It is diverse and it's dynamic. It is the only kingdom that will endure in this world. Number two, a family of God. The dynamic within the kingdom is that of a family. Brothers and sisters adopted in, and there's always room for more. Imagine a picture of a household, that every time this household has a dinner together, they always set an extra plate at the table. Extra plates, placemat, forks, everything. As a symbol and a practical gesture to their children, that they can always invite their friends over. We'll always make extra for your friends. There's always room for more. And I can't help but maybe that's the picture God had in mind. After all, it's how Jesus broke borders or barriers. He constantly sat at tables with people he shouldn't be sitting with. If you look at Jesus' ministry, a lot of it surrounded around the table. He would move from feast to feast, dinner to dinner, meal to meal, table to table. To dine with them as friends and value them as human beings, despite what the law and culture say. And then to eventually die for them and make them family forever. So that we can sit elbow to elbow and shoulder to shoulder in a table that he has set for us. Like, can you see how radical that is? It's radical when Paul wrote it, and it's radical now as we look at the walls all around us. The degrees of separation we feel from each other. And third, this new humanity is to be a temple not made of stone. As I've mentioned beforehand, the temple is at the center of Jewish life. And really to the Jewish people, it's the center of the universe. It's the place where God himself dwells. And we, as in the church, are to be temples of the living presence of God. And no one is excluded when you call Jesus Lord. And it's exactly this line of thinking and believing that got Paul into trouble. Remember that he's in prison in Rome writing this letter. And the reason why he's in Rome is because he requested to be transferred there specifically. He was initially captured by the Jewish religious elite. And he knew, he knew if he stayed in their hands, he would surely die. They hated what he preached. They hated what he taught. They hated the idea of Jesus breaking all these walls and allowing just anyone come to the table. Paul knows this because he himself propped up these walls. He sentenced Stephen to death. In Acts 7.48, it, it records what Stephen had said that caused stoning and eventual death. It says, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. This is what God had stoned. And in the end, we are to become this incredible dwelling of God himself, or in other words, God wants to make his home with us. He wants to be, he wants us to be the kind of people that he's settled with, settled down with. 
And the image Paul paints here is that we are individual bricks being built together, together, fitted in belonging with Jesus as the cornerstone and the apostles and prophets as the foundation. Because when we build anything apart from Jesus, anything apart from Jesus, it will crumble. Give it time and pressure and it will. Want to take a sip of water? It's mm. good water. Thank you, sister, for getting that for me. Um, this task of, of reconciliation, when we really start to sit under it, think about it, pray about it, ruminate on it, it's not just about the issues out there. It's not just about the issues that you see on social media or the news feeds. A story of reconciliation that works itself out in our own lives with our broken relationships, with the walls we have put up. Consider this quote from N.T. Wright. He says, there is ultimately no justification for private piety that doesn't work out in actual mission just as there is no justification for people who use their activism in the social, cultural, and political sphere as a screen to prevent, sorry, prevent them from facing the same challenges in their own lives. If the gospel isn't transforming you, how do you know it will transform anything else? This is not a way of saying that you can never be good enough to call out evil. It's not a way of saying that you can never post about anything else on your social media. I think what it does address is the hyper-individualized gospel or this private piety that NT talks about. If I can call him NT. And there I met the guy. And this hyper-individualized gospel teaches us an understanding of salvation that we are saved to go to heaven. And everything else in between is a waiting room until we get to the other side. And there's no point in trying to fix anything on earth because the earth is going towards destruction anyway, it's a judgment. There's no point trying to recycle or throwing away our garbage where it should be. There's no point in trying to fix relationship. It's all just gonna be judged anyways. And it's not untrue. This gospel is not untrue, but it's just not the whole multi-dimensional shape of the gospel. In other words, the gospel is much better news than the earth just going to hell in judgment. And it can actually serve as a screen that prevents any cross-shaped transformation in our own lives. They serve as a screen. And as Brad said last week, we are saved for something and not just from something. We're not just saved from the pit. There is good work that God has set, up, set us out to do after we're out of the pit. He has saved us for a new life that reflects God's goodness, beauty, and grace to the world. We're not saved by good works, but for good works. And good works of reconciliation is a way that reflects God's goodness and his very heart to others. And what paves the way for reconciliation to happen in our world is forgiveness. Forgiveness is a way of life for someone who follows Jesus. It's not a singular moment in a hyper-individualized gospel where you accept Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. 
and that's the only form of forgiveness you understand. Consider this line of the Lord's Prayer in says in Matthew 6, 12. And forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And then the later exposition in 14 to 15, where Jesus says, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive you of your sins. And religious ears will hear this as, If I don't forgive others, God won't forgive me. It seems like that in the first reading, doesn't it? But God isn't like that. Forgiveness is not attached with some conditions. Gospel-shaped hearts will grow to understand that God does not deal with us in conditions. His love is unconditional, full stop. You are forgiven, full stop. What Jesus tells us is that when we choose not to forgive, we prevent ourselves from receiving God's forgiveness. Think of a piano you received as a gift. And someone plays this beautiful tune for you. You love it. And now they're asking you, learn this tune and play for others, but you don't want to, you refuse to. Like, that tune's just for me. So you close your piano room, or you lock up your piano, and while you've solved the problem of not playing the tune for other people, no one else can play anything for you either. Forgiveness is a capacity of the human heart. When we are closed off to it in any way, shape, or form, it cuts us off not only from playing the tune of forgiveness to others, but from hearing the original and beautiful tune from God ourselves. Or think of it another way. Consider the way that you can open and close your hands. The only way to receive or hold anything is with your hands open. When we choose not to give anything after we receive, we close it like this, like a fist. And physically speaking, you cannot receive or hold anything any longer. And so we must keep our hands open. And really this prayer is radical. It's asking Jesus to help us keep our hands open. Keep our hands open as we receive and give forgiveness to others. The way of life in Jesus' kingdom is both, not one or the other. It's both to receive forgiveness and give it away. It's the only way to live in sync with the redemption God has set in motion and to join it. And the deeper we love and forgive, the deeper we can hope. Because if God can do that in our hearts, right? If God can do that in our hearts and in the lives of people around us, then we can get to see all the more the reconciliation, it really is God's work. And the walls around us can come, can come crumbling down when we give our heart to Jesus. And this brand of forgiveness, there's many brands of forgiveness out there. This specific brand in the gospel in the heart of Jesus. It's not easy, nor is it possible without Jesus. And it starts with remembering, remembering that we were far off from God, but he came near to us first and brought us near through Jesus. 
And then Jesus took all of the hostilities that we have received from others and the hostilities we have inflicted on others. The pain and separation we feel from broken relationships is but a shadow to all the hostilities that Jesus took on in himself. And then he died for all of it, all of us, to make a way of, to heal divides and break down walls. First with God, and then in our own hearts. And we live out this reality and this story by forgiving. And forgiveness is a choice before it's a feeling. You're never gonna feel like you wanna forgive. And it will feel slow and stumbling. And through fits and starts, learning one note at a time, we begin this long journey, the long journey of forgiveness. And it's not, it is not neglecting justice. It is not excusing sin or hurtful behavior or the abuser. It is not the removal of boundaries that make you feel safe, both emotionally and physically. And it's definitely not sweeping issues under the rug. This brand of forgiveness is only found in Jesus. And his promises, he will be with us in everything, both to work within us and to not give up on us. When it happens again, and we have to forgive again, Jesus said, as he has said to his disciples, that he will love us to the end. To the end. And he said this um, during that time where they were breaking bread and it was the upper room discourse. And just before he was betrayed, it's as if this picture of Jesus looking over this chasm at the end of a cliff and towards his death, he falls. And in the book of John, there's this line where Jesus loved them to the end. It's almost as if he was saying, Jesus looked at the chasm of all our hostilities, our refusal to forgive, all our hate and bitterness, and even the betrayal that he was about to face. And he said, I'm all in. And he jumped. And he died for all of us. Despite whether we feel like forgiving today or not. I will love you until the end, until all hostilities end, until the end of all division, until the end of all brokenness. And to that we say, Lord Jesus, even so, come, come. Let's pray. I want you to feel the breath that comes in your lungs. A moment of stillness in a maybe busy week. And I'm always reminded when I breathe, I'm still praying. Breathless prayer reminds us that every breath is grace and a gift, unmerited and unearned, but simply given because he loves. And every time I breathe intentionally, I say, Jesus, I want to breathe you in. And so I want us to take time today. We'll respond in song in just a moment, but just take time to breathe. 
and maybe the feeling of bitterness and hostilities around you make you want to hold your breath and you haven't been breathing this whole week. I want you to take time to breathe in the grace and gift of being alive in Jesus. And just to say thank you. Thank you that you loved us till the end. There was nothing about us at that cliff, that moment where you made a choice to die for us that made you change your mind. And that you've died for every single word, posture, that caused division instead of healing, that caused hurt instead of love. And so we as your church, Lord, breathe in your grace and your love for us. It is a simple grace that reminds us it's your breath in our lungs. It's your forgiveness in our hearts. Help us keep our hands open to you. Because I believe in what you've come to show me There's no oversimplification in forgiving at all. The ask here isn't just forgive it and get over it. The ask here is to come into your presence and bring the situation, the person, the feeling before you and allow you to breathe on it and teach us to breathe with you as we carry it together because you hold us all in love, not in contempt, not in conditions. You don't hold us because we've mastered forgiveness. You hold us because we are in need of forgiveness. And your heart is drawn out to us there in our deepest weakness, in our deepest inability to forgive. You say, breathe, let go of your debtor. Trust my wrath and my anger, trust me. And whatever step that looks like for you to keep your hands open to the Lord and receive more of his forgiveness than you have ever had, maybe take that step today by the power that is now at work within us. Not an outside power, not the power that's at work within our flesh, but the power that's at work with Jesus that was raised from the dead and did not consider our sins a hindrance to love us and die for us. Lord Jesus, come. We need you. We have never needed you more than we have at this very moment. Come. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.